happy Monday, and welcome to episode five of the Sneak Preview. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Austin Johnson. And this is our newest podcast dedicated to following the 2021 movie release calendar. Today's episode will be on the serial killer drama, The Little Things, released this past Friday in theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously. We'll also talk a bit about Netflix's The Dig and Apple TV Plus's Palmer. Going to be a loaded episode, especially since we've got mixed feelings about all three of these films. But before we get started, we got to dig into what happened last week in film. Last week in film. Interesting week. First up, and this was only announced earlier today, recording this on Sunday the 31st, Oscar-nominated filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos has announced his next project, an adaptation of the novel Poor Things. He's reteaming with Emma Stone for a film that's described as, quote, the bizarre life of a female Frankenstein who is resuscitated after a fetus's brain is placed in her skull. Will likely appear in fall 2021. And does that, does that not sound like pure Yorgos right there? Yeah, of course it does. You know, the guy who, the guy who does Canada, Dogtooth, Alps, <laughs> The Lobster, Killing with Sacred Deer, and The Favorite. Yeah, that definitely sounds like that. <laughs> God. I mean, he's kind of fast-tracking this. I mean, fall 2021, obviously prepping for next Oscar season, I would imagine. And, uh, you know, that puts him right in our crosshair, so we'll probably be doing that on the show. <laughs> well, 100%. He's one of my favorite directors working right now. Uh, I, I see multiple borderline ma- masterpieces in his filmography already. I'm just kind of on board no matter what. Uh, he, he's a guy that <clears throat> I definitely don't want to see the trailer. I don't want to see anything of what Yorgos has in mind uh, until I'm ready to watch the full film. He's, he's that kind of make filmmaker. Uh, I feel the same way, you know, about our boy, Denny, you know, coming out of Dune, like I'm, I'm on board for Denny's Denny's work, just like I am Yorgos. Yeah. He's definitely a guy. Like if you know, the, if you've seen his work, you know exactly what to prepare for. And if you haven't buckle the fuck up because <laughs> he, he's not your average filmmaker. He goes to very insane places. And, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. He's he, he's he's a, he's one of the most rare guys we have right now. And he, you mentioned that he kind of, you know, crosses interconnects in between what we're doing on all of our shows. Well, he, yeah, and he interconnects uh, everything in film. He he's Oscar nominated, but he's also just wicked dedicated to genre filmmaking and going outside of the box and does not let you know does not let up. Yeah, and. Has, has kind of to me mastered his own like his own craft so i'm really excited to see what comes next with him always he, he's a very interesting interesting guy yeah could talk about him forever <laughs> yeah he's there are very few filmmakers who we can talk about on all three podcasts <laughs> exactly exactly and yorgos is definitely like right in the crosshairs yeah that's uh, what he does yeah <laughs> What I've seen so far of his work has been just off the wall and really hard to explain to people who aren't already aren't already fans of his. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Next up, Kevin Hart and Kate Blanchett have joined the cast of Eli Roth's upcoming Borderlands movie, based on the popular video game. Uh, have you ever played Borderlands? No, you know, video games are an interesting topic for me because i have i have two older brothers and 
I'm not going to say I haven't played a lot of video games, but it was rare that I would, you know, play certain games. That, that being one of them, for sure. Uh, I watched my brother Jeremy play that game a lot. And that, that's the one with uh, Cage the Elephant at the beginning, correct? I have ain't, no idea. <laughs> ain't No Rest for the Wicked, I believe, is the uh, intro song to that video game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I watched my brother play that one. That, that happened with a lot of video games like Bioshock or some of the Batman games, you know, stuff like that. So that's, I more watched it than played it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I was an only child and I was the oldest of my cousins. So I was always player one. Yeah, you're Mario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, I wasn't even I wasn't even Luigi. I, I mean, I was I was I was a spectator. Yeah. It's hilarious. But um, I will say I will say I was I was always included in, you know, stuff like Super Smash Bros or if it or or if it was a game that had, you know, the three or four player. I was definitely included, but when it came to yeah, two one player and two player stuff, no chance. I had PlayStation as a kid and still to this day when a lot of their games are mostly one player. So that was never really a problem for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Borderlands never caught my attention. I just never, you know, the older I get, the less time I invest in video games, especially, you know, being sucked into this endless podcast wormhole. <laughs> like there's video games just don't even register anymore. So I got nothing on Borderlands, never played it, don't know what it's about, but I'll see the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. Give me an hour and a half to two hour film. Yeah. um this is interesting two-time oscar winner jane fonda will be receiving the cecil b demille award at this year's golden globes airing on february 28th which is very interesting because you've been on a recent jane fonda binge so tell us a little bit about that uh i have i've watched let's see i actually have them written down right here i think it's five movies of what yeah we'll start with uh clute from 1971 i watched that's uh oscar winning performance from her she's just unbelievable in that alongside donald sutherland i watched the morning after from 86 with jeff bridges wild movie i watched the chase 1966 that's uh marlon brando robert redford robert duvall jane fonda just an unbelievable cast um and then we got the china uh china syndrome that would be with michael douglas uh jack lemons in that she was nominated for that one as well uh, and then Barefoot in the Park with her and Robert Redford. Yeah, I've been just kind of like diving in the Jane Fonda world this past, this past month um, because I haven't done it before. And I've heard so much about her, obviously, I, like nonstop uh, as I've been diving more into, you know, into film myself. And she's a name I had to kind of figure out why the name's so big. Let me tell you, she is a, <laughs> she's a stunning performer. And of these movies, the China Syndrome include are, are absolute must-sees um, for, for, for anybody, I think. And I think specifically 70s fans, you know, they're, they both encompass like exactly what you want out of a 70s movie. Um, the China Syndrome, the stakes feel just right, just right for you to be roped in to what's going on. And the characters, you know, Jane Fonda, and uh, she plays Kimberly Wells, this reporter, and she's just stunning in it, uh, unbelievable and she, she's one of those ladies that I, I totally understand, you know, the acclaim she has uh, and, you know, all the nominations she had. I, I get it. And I'm going to keep watching her stuff. She's awesome. She won for Clute and then Coming Home, I believe, right? Was her other one? Correct. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That, that one's with John Voight and who's the other lad in that. Yes. Yeah. Bruce Dern. Yeah. I have not seen that one. Uh, yeah. These are like the first ones I've really like, you know, consciously known and chosen I'm watching this because Jane Fonda's in it. 
um, and, I, and I got I got a lot more out of it because of all the other actors you know that are in it and I, I've had a lot of fun man um, but yeah China Syndrome and Clute are definitely my favorites of those cool and I, yeah I love that you did that completely unaware that she was going to get the Cecil B. DeMille oh uh, yeah no <laughs> yeah no 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 I yeah just by chance but she yeah she's she's great she's like a legend and so it makes sense that at some point that would happen yeah <laughs> fantastic yeah I'm I hope the Globes are going to happen on the 28th. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen anymore. I mean, we still have not gotten any nominations and tomorrow, like today is the first. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if that it'll probably get pushed. Yeah. It's already, it's already February, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so things, things are moving. Yep. Shame. Lovecraft country creator Misha Green has been tapped to write and direct a sequel to 2018's Tomb Raider with Alicia Vikander returning as Lara Croft. I really enjoyed the first Terminator. I'm not Terminator. What the hell? Tomb Raider. And, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I've never seen the Angelina Jolie ones. Uh, I just... All right. I don't care for her. Sorry. But I just... I don't care for her. And... Huh. I don't think we've ever talked about her quite. No, not really. She's... She's a... I, I, you know, I, I really have a respect for uh, Girl Interrupted. I think that movie's pretty 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 damn good and her and you know uh Winona Ryder are, are pretty pretty awesome alongside each other but I I don't have you know a lot of like roles that I just point to with her you know yeah. that, that would be the one that would be the one that I really point to and there's others that I enjoy you know I think Wanted's kind of a fun movie kind of but for the most part yeah I think I'm I think I'm with you man I don't really see the see see the resume being that that impressive but she's obviously wicked popular yeah, she is. Yeah. But I thought Alicia Vikander has charisma and really did a good job making Lara Croft a grounded character. I mean, the, the yes. story of that movie is ripped off straight out of the first Uncharted game. So that was irritating. Like, it's the same identical situation. El Dorado is a, like a diseased emperor. Like, it's the, like, I can't believe they didn't get sued. It's that identical. But it was a good movie. <laughs> it's a good game, yeah. I've never played the game. I've tried. I, I can't that's get another it. one. That's another one I watched uh, my brother play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was always more partial to Uncharted. I thought those were really cool and really fun. And uh, yeah, Tomb Raider, I could just never get into them. I had like the first Tomb Raider on PlayStation. Oh, I'm sorry. I was talking about Uncharted as well for my older brother. Oh, oh right. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, you, yeah, he, Jeremy was big into those games. Uh, but yeah, Tomb, Tomb Raider, I don't have like any recollection of playing or watching anybody play. Yeah, it's this giant phenomenon that yeah. nobody I know has played. <laughs> Starting to think like those are some inflated numbers. <laughs> there's, there, there's, there's somebody listening who's like, you bastards. <laughs> he, he, he like has it on. He, or whoever is playing the game right now while listening to podcasts and <laughs> it's having this existential moment. The yeah, second they, we... Yeah. The second we start a gamegasm podcast, then I will start paying attention <laughs> to video games. But until then, nah. Yeah, no, I, I'm not going to just try things out. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, uh, this was weird. Godzilla versus Kong has been pushed back, but only a few days. It's going to be releasing on HBO Max now on March 31st instead of March 26th. So not really sure why that was necessary. Um... 
What's the what are those days? Twenty sixth was a Friday, and I think the thirty first is a Wednesday now. Correct. Hmm. Maybe something else comes out that day on the twenty sixth. Maybe they're wanting to have no competition on the like first day of streaming. I don't know. What competition could possibly be going up against Godzilla versus Kong? Let's the find only out. blockbuster of the year. <laughs> True, true. I yeah, that that is true. But I I still feel like there's got to be a reason. I think it had something to do with an international thing, some kind of red tape. I I don't know. Yeah, some simple bullshit, or someone just some guy just messed up the you know the coding. Ah, fuck! Now we have to release it on the thirty first. Something like that happened to a Bond movie once. the The movie Tomorrow Never Dies from nineteen ninety seven. When they uh-huh. faxed the title to MGM, they typed it wrong. It was supposed to be tomorrow never lies, but some idiot typed a D and MGM was like, we love it. Start production. And you can't just say like, Oh, we fucked up. This is the real title. Cause MGM loves it. So it became tomorrow never dies. <laughs> the L and the D are not even close to each other. On the- <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> oh man. Um, next up, Robert Rodriguez is writing and directing a reboot to his own 2001 movie, Spy Kids. <sighs> Here we go again. I feel like he comes up a lot and it's not good news, like ever. Uh, why? <laughs> Dude, for, oh, how does he not get it at this point? I mean, mm, the first two Spy Kids are decent fl- flicks. Three and four are garbage. And does anybody care about Spy Kids anymore? Like, is Rodriguez just perpetually trapped in kids' movies? Did he sign a contract 10 years ago that's ironclad? Like, why is he doing this? <laughs> from, from the words of from George and Seinfeld, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> it's inexplicable. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean... I think at first he was doing it for his kids, but his kids are in their twenties now. So I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I truly, <clears throat> this is a, a, a filmmaker that has done some cool stuff and kind of, kind of, kind of messing up uh, the, the legacy for me. This is the guy behind from dust till dawn, El Mariachi, Sin City. Like what happened <laughs> somewhere along the line? He just, I don't want to say gave up, but I, I don't know. Stop paying attention. <laughs> I don't I, I want him to go back to his roots and do some gritty shit. He's so good when he does really gritty, you know, Texas shit. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to see that, at least not for a long time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm still sucks. waiting for Machete Kills in Space. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> uh, next up, and you'll like this, Oscar-nominated filmmaker Noah Baumbach has signed an exclusive multi-year film deal with Netflix following the critical success of Marriage Story. So we're going to be getting a lot more Noah Baumbach dramas in the ne- next few years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't be happier with uh, a decision like that with a company that obviously I subscribe to and a guy that 
I, you know, I've seen everything he's done so far and I feel like he's a really, really solid filmmaker. And really what, when it hit me was, was I love marriage story. I I really do think that's a awesome, awesome film. But the one that kind of like got me was Meyerowitz stories. And that was 2017. And that was also a Netflix release. And I think, you know, doing that and then obviously doing marriage story. And like you said, all, all the success that that got, um, you know, criterion selected and Oscar nominated and it's, it's a solid, solid flick. (laughs) I, I think making this move is the best thing Bombac could do because of the freedom he has. Uh, clearly they're going to back him to make the movies, the exact movies he wants to make. And that, that may, as a fan of his, I'm like really happy for him, you know, and I'm, I'm really happy for, for me as I get, I'll get to watch more stuff like that right here at home, because I think he also, his films lend themselves to watching them anywhere. You can watch them at home and on the couch and the theater. I think you're going to have a good experience no matter what his characters, his writing is that good. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm uber excited for that. Uh, of course I, I saw that news and I knew we were going to be able to bring it up today. And it's a lot of fun. I, th- I think, I think people should be excited for this. You know, he's, he's a special guy. Yeah. Especially since, you know, Netflix has kind of become the go-to place for filmmakers to really, you know, get to embrace their own visions and Netflix gives directors a hell of a lot of freedom. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've seen more and more filmmakers flock to Netflix in the past, like six, seven years. And that's going to, you know, explode in the future. I think Netflix is the new, like, you know, the new Sundance. Like that's where people go now. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, you know, we could talk about this all day, right? And this, this show lends itself to this conversation, this kind of a conversation about how it's moving and Netflix, HBO Max, Hulu, whatever, you know, all these streaming services. But Netflix has been at the forefront of like, okay, we're, gonna, we're going to make contracts like we're a studio and let them do whatever they want in whatever space they want. That's, that's, you know, it's a genius. Like it, it of course, you know, puts an X, you know, annexes the the theater and is like, you don't need to have a theater for that. And that sucks. And you and I are in agreement that that sucks. And we don't, we don't, we want movies to be in theaters, but the way it's moving, I, I, I don't have any problems with that kind of a decision. Nah, man, Noah Baumbach, Alfonso Cuaron, Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee. They don't have any problem either. Exactly. Exactly. And they understand that Steven Soderbergh with HBO Max, you know, these, these people, they understand what's going on and they know, <clears throat> they know what's most important is for people to see the art. Think about how many movies that are old that you watch there. You don't get to see them in theaters. You have to sit at home and watch them and you have these wonderful experiences and, and these filmmakers are looking at, and this is how I look at it too, as a huge fan is like, what, what's your legacy going to, what's going to happen to your legacy? Yeah. You know, a guy like Christopher Nolan, who was just kind of dogging everybody and just throwing rocks at everyone. What are you doing to your legacy right now, man? And, and I, I think about that stuff, you know, I really do as a, as a, as a fan of these people and the, uh, their work. Yeah. I, you know, I totally understand 
the decisions that Bombac has made, and like you said, you know, Quaron and Scorsese, you know, these wonderful filmmakers. I get it. Yeah, they snagged Fincher last last month. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the list goes on and on. There's there's all these wonderful small time filmmakers. You know, Ava DuVernay. Like, oh my gosh, she's this fucking genius, and she's got the thirteenth and when they see us, she's like, I'm going to use this shit because this is how people, the common people who work and can't go to the theater and can't spend all that money on fucking concessions and shit. So they can watch it at home right away. Cause it's about inclusion. It's about, you know, I, I get that. I get it. I understand both sides, but I, I I'm kind of more leaning on, you know, filmmakers like that who are understanding of the times that money's tight. Times are tight and you got to make decisions. It's about inclusion, but it's also from the filmmaker's side. It's also very much about adaptability. And what we saw with Nolan is that he he just doesn't he's not willing to compromise in the slightest. And I was really surprised at how stuck in his ways he was, because I always assumed he was like a progressive filmmaker just because of his films. But turns out, no, he's really kind of a child. I'll, I'll say I feel like it's been on my mind just anytime I think about any of his movies is is Christopher Nolan is, is an awesome, awesome filmmaker. Yeah. He had, he has a resume now, a filmography that is like, Whoa, is really impressive. He's helped out, you know, multiple people's careers and uh, you know, he made superhero movies cool again. And I, I'm forever grateful for, for, for multiple works of his. And there's others that I don't care for as much. But what I see, like you said, with the adaptability, what I see now is, and the way I think of it, when I'm like, oh, yeah, it totally makes sense that he doesn't want to adapt because he can't. Look at every one of his movies since, I mean, what, is he going to make Memento again? No. You know, I mean, all of these films now, since, you know, since Batman Begins, they are massive, massive, expensive, huge productions with massive set pieces that are built not on location they're built massive giant things you know in the back cave all this stuff christopher nolan builds that shit you know he really makes a movie from the ground up and that's awesome that's really cool but if you can't do anything other than that I, that's on you man that's on you yeah that's your that's your adaptability problem because your tenant movie can only be seen in theaters yeah because when people watch it at home they see through it it's mumbly as shit you know it it doesn't have all the massive things going on on the huge screen to distract you and so people have problems with it under i understand you know and i think when he gets brought up you and i i think there's always this conversation that's been there and i felt like saying it now is i think i think he doesn't know how to adapt at this point he's been used to being given all this all of this money by, by Warner brothers and just do whatever he wants and just build these massive. And you can't, you can't do that right now. <laughs> you know, like a guy like Noah Baumbach or even a guy like Martin Scorsese or even Alfonso Cuaron, these guys are willing to, to do what they have to do. Steven Soderbergh, they're willing to do what they have to do. Um, Sam Levinson making Malcolm and Marie, which comes out next week. Like, you know, that's these people are willing to do what they have to do to make their film, make some art yeah, and help their legacy out. And I, I, I guess I don't see Chris Nolan doing that. And I, that kind of sucks. Well, I think that what this showed 
that's a very good point by the way that he is like trapped in his own ego is um scorsese is a guy who has proven time and time again he really is all about the art of filmmaking and all about making something that lasts yeah nolan i think is really more about himself and furthering his own name using giant set pieces because like you said, you know, since Batman, I think he's gotten a taste for the grandiose and he's either unwilling or unable to do something on a small scale again, like Memento or Insomnia. And yes. that's a damn shame because he is really good in small doses and in large ones. He's a very versatile filmmaker, but I don't think he knows that anymore. No, that's my favorite part of his filmography is that beginning stage. Like <laughs> those first three movies, I think are, awesome like they all have something super interesting to offer and i think i think as we go on there's just they're, they're like like inception it's just like dude like dude you're so far up your own ass like dude stop <laughs> and interstellar he brings it back a little bit and, and you know i think that movie's a lot more solid yeah uh i i think there's just like clear things there like like we're saying the adaptability you can just kind of see it over the past 15 years well, he does, you know, from, let's say, from The Dark Knight, which was huge, easily his, you know, his biggest movie. And yeah, follows yeah. that with Inception, which is, you know, sprawling, enormous. I love how we got here talking about Noah Baumbach, by the way. And um, this is what we do. <laughs> this, you know, Inception's kind of embraced by, the, by a lot of people, but also divisive. He follows that with the dark Knight rises, which, you know, ups the Batman ante big time. He follows that with interstellar, which is a giant space Epic. He just, he keeps getting bigger. He follows interstellar with Dunkirk, which is another huge giant battle film. And then he follows that with tenant, which is just incredibly self-indulgent and very much about him. So I just, yeah, I think Christopher Nolan has somehow gotten stuck in his own ass. That's the only explanation. Like he is very much just so like confident in his own ability that he's not seeing the point of all this is that it's not about Christopher Nolan. It's about adaptability of Hollywood right now. And yeah. he doesn't realize that it's not, like, he really does. I think it's an ego thing. Yeah, you, you, he just might have to go back into his mind when he was making following Memento and Insomnia. You just might have to go back to that place for a little bit. No, because that, that means low budget and not a lot of press. <laughs> that, means, that, means the, that means the writing has to be really good again. <laughs> yes, that's another thing, yeah. Because uh, oh. I, 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 I feel like I come across like I don't like him. That's why I try to open up like he is an incredible filmmaker. I just when you when you do put a guy up on you know on the on the on the block and you're just kind of talking about him, especially on this kind of a show with what's happening in film right now, he's an interesting person. He's he's divisive and he's interesting. Yeah, and I've lost a lot. I've, I've lost a lot of respect for him because of all this. He really comes across as a petulant child who's not getting to play with his favorite toy, <laughs> and that's that's very disgraceful right now when things are you know in a darker place than they've 
been, ever been in Hollywood. And everyone is really trying to figure out the, the best way forward. And he is just screaming that his movie didn't get enough play in theaters. And that's why people didn't like it. Like, dude, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chris. Chris. So Christopher Nolan, we got there from Noah Baumbach. Yeah. You, you got to love that. You know, ultimately I think we were really talking about, you know, Netflix and the adaptability of, of these yeah. filmmakers and, and Nolan is just such a fascinating guy in that conversation. Um, yeah. And I, I, anytime I can look at a guy, like a director like that, just look at their filmography again. I always have fun. Uh, yeah. Cause, cause when you look down the line, you're like, Holy shit, all those movies made hella money. Like this guy can do whatever he wants during this decade, you know, this past decade. It's crazy. And we clearly, you know, respect the guy's films. I mean, last week we just did a giant recast of the dark Knight trilogy which we just sung the praises of the entire time. So we do appreciate his films. We just don't like how he's handled this whole tenant situation. Yes. Yes. Inception is the only one that I'm like, mm, like I don't really like all of the other movies. I can like, I can have like a legitimate conversation about, and I think they all have something to offer. You know, I think, I think Dunkirk like visually is just, just stunning, unbelievable the way it moves. And that, that, that's one of his gifts. I agree. Yeah. He's, his work does speak for itself, but yeah, just, I think, you know, he's, he's sullied his rep with Warner brothers over this and he was Warner brothers, like one of their biggest guys. Uh, Yeah. 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 And I think that he's, this is going to give him a rep of being difficult which is hard to shake in Hollywood. Yeah. So we'll see where this goes. <laughs> yeah. We'll definitely always be talking about it here. <laughs> uh, next up, a sequel to Cloverfield is in the works from producer JJ Abrams. And of course this being Cloverfield, all we know is that it will not be found footage. It is going to be a sequel to the first film. So yeah, hopefully we get some goddamn answers this time. Yeah, we'll get maybe get some closure this time. I, I there there's aspects of the film that I like, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, this might be necessary depending on on how they actually do it. I thought Cloverfield was awesome upon a second watch. I thought Ten Cloverfield Lane was very good, and I really didn't like the Cloverfield paradox. So I'm with you on that. We're two for three. Let's see how this goes. Yeah, shooting for that seventy five percent. Come on now. And JJ is another guy who's lost a lot of my respect over the way he handled Star Wars. So I, I just, ah. <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood just breeds, breeds these kind of, you know, egos. Yeah. Yes. Ugh. Now into the sadder portion of today's show. Oscar nominated actress Cecily Tyson has died at 96 years old from natural causes. She was nominated for her performance in 1972's Sounder and was a widely respected uh, pioneering black actress known for her performances in such films as Fried Green Tomatoes, The Help, and most recently her recurring role on How to Get Away with Murder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, she's an actress I've never really explored. And um, I looked into her and I was really surprised at how like incredibly well-respected she was in the community. And uh, yeah, sad to see her go. Yeah, yeah, she's she's one of those names you you kind of know. I've seen seen around, but yeah, I haven't seen enough. 
yeah, fr- frustrating. I definitely saw a lot of stuff, you know, on, on the social media and whatnot, people just kind of singing her praises. And yeah. I always love reading that stuff um, when it's someone that I don't have a lot of knowledge about. And, and I feel like I can kind of uh, have these experiences while people share what they felt felt about them while they were here. And that's really cool to have those like moments of reflection uh, while, you know, that's the social media age, you know, people didn't always get to do that. So we get to kind of hear like, like someone like quest love. Like I, I saw, he put something on Instagram about, about it, you know, stuff like that's really cool that we get to kind of be a part of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I love like being plugged in to the current movie situation, like movie situation, just as much as we can and getting to kind of experience everything as it happens. It's a very interesting experience. I've never paid this much attention before. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Finally, another sad bit of news, Oscar winning actress and comedy veteran Cloris Leachman has died at 94 years old from natural causes. Leachman won her Oscar for her performance in 1971's The Last Picture Show and is also known for her hilarious role as Frau Blucher in 1974's Young Frankenstein, among many other performances. And she was just a hilarious addition to anything she did. Cloris Leachman was a gem, and it was sad to see her go, but she lived a full life, she died peacefully, and that's, that's good. The last picture show has been on my watch list for about 10 years now. So yeah. I'm going to go ahead and do that soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, sh- shame on me for waiting for something like this to happen. But I feel like that's what we all do as humans is sometimes how we pay respect to, to artists or, or, or celebrities, what have you. We watch their art. We watch their craft. And um, that's, that's, what I'll, that's what I'll probably, probably be doing. Hell yeah. I'm going to, you know. I'm going to throw on young Frankenstein. I mean, when I, well, yeah, it's one of your favorite <laughs> movies, 1974 goddamn classic. So yeah. When I heard about this, I looked at, at Twitter and I saw just constant posts of the gif is a gif from the scene where Frau Blucher is saying good night to Dr. Frankenstein. And she just goes, then I shall say good night. And he very quickly goes good night because he's so annoyed. And it's just such a great scene. And it was a great way to remember her. Hell yeah. Oh, I think everyone, I think Mel Brooks is the last, Mel Brooks and Terry Garr are the last ones standing from that film. Jeez. That's dark. Sorry to ruin young Frankenstein for you guys. No, no, it's one of your, that's one of your all time favorites. You can't do that. Yeah. It's impossible. Perfect. Perfect movie. It really, it really is pretty seamless. Uh, that movie I, you know, need to see it more. Obviously, you know, you know, it like the back of your hand. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's your favorite film from that year. So that's always cool when you, yeah, I when you pin, when you pinpoint a film from that, from the seventies, it's going to be a good movie. If that's your favorite movie from the year, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a good decade. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Oh. So before we get into the little things, let's talk a little bit about two other films, the dig, mm-hmm and Palmer. Yes. So I was able to watch the dig and you were able to watch Palmer. So between the two of us, we got everything done. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you start? Tell us a bit about Palmer. Ah, Palmer. Palmer is the, the Apple TV plus, you know, release starring Justin Timberlake, 
And I gotta say, the trailer, I actually watched this trailer, you know, and you and I talked about it. Like, oh, this looks like it's gonna be, you know, pretty, pretty gut wrenching, Jesus. And then you see the poster and you're like, oh, I've seen that poster before. Shit, (laughs) you know, and you kind of like, you start the film and, has a very typical beginning and you're like, ah, shit, you know, am I about to just watch a movie I've seen about 500 times? <laughs> and that sort of happened, you know, here in Palmer. It's, it's, it's directed by Fisher Stevens, written by Cheryl Guerrero. Um, again, starring Justin Timberlake, Ryder Allen, Alicia Wainwright. Timberlake's obviously the, the main star here. And he's a, you know, ex-convict. Right at the beginning of the movie, we see him, you know, kind of get out of prison and whatnot and that's our introduction to him is like, there's some blues music and he goes to a bar. Cause he's like, I haven't had a drink in a long time. You know, it's very, very typical. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he comes across, um, as he goes back home, he comes across a, a family that's living nearby and they have a, they have a son who's, you know, dresses, dresses kind of like a girl, uh, you know, wears like pink glasses sometimes and wears, like you know like girl clothing right yeah and it's becomes that becomes the focal point of the film is you know justin timberlake's character palmer and this boy sammy they have this relationship you know this where he has to start kind of taking taking ownership of what's going on here and kind of has to become the 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 parent you know of, of this kid and there's some moments there you know i think think the little boy like kind of you know is like kind of pierces through your heart a few times just by you know it's in louisiana so you got like just got some southern situations typical southern situations where people are picking on him and calling him names and stuff and that's you know it's quite frustrating but again i feel like i've seen it kind of over and over you know what i mean and so nothing nothing really stood out about palmer and for that reason, I can't like recommend it. You know what I mean? Um, I give it a six out of 10 overall. I think Timberlake's doing, doing some stuff that's not bad here, but, but you know, you got, you got not a lot, not a lot of great direction and, and not the, the screenplay doesn't know exactly where it wants to go. Um, and kind of, kind of jams some, some ideas in. I think there's like a stretch where you're just kind of over like, okay, come on. Like you're overloaded with multiple things like, and she's on drugs and this person died and this happened and Palmer's just in this shit, you know? And and again, I think what my main problem is that it's redundant. I've seen it, seen this kind of stuff before. Um, But I do know that you got to watch the dig. So I would like to hear about that Netflix film because quite honestly, I, I, again, six out of 10, I can't totally recommend it. Before I get started, how was uh, how was Timberlake? He's fine. He's right. fine. You know, I, I think he totally belongs in the kind of character actor or or doing something like like what he does in social network is Sean Parker. Yeah. Oh boy, you know, like he comes in and just kind of fires, fires, fires away. But leading and carrying a movie, I'm just not like totally on board with with it. Yeah. And this char- this character is very very rough, very gritty, you know. Was in prison for for 12 years and has this big beard, you know, smokes cigarettes all the time. I, I just like don't he doesn't totally carry it. Like I don't totally believe it. Um 
he's, he's okay though. There's, there's a few moments where you're, you're like, okay, he's, you know, he's, he's doing some cool stuff here, but yeah, overall he's fine. He definitely contributes to the six a little bit. there, just kind of average, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think Alicia Wainwright, she plays a, a character named Maggie that is a sort of love interest for, for Timberlake's character Palmer. Uh, she was all right in moments. Again, the writing is not great there, but she was all right in moments. Um, yeah, man. Uh, Ryder Allen is the one who plays plays Sam, Sammy, the, the boy. Pretty good. You know, just a little kid. Again, not a lot of great lines. So, yeah, that's that's where that's where I'm kind of at. There is a solid six. Yeah, sounds like failed Oscar bait to me. That's... Y- yeah. Oh, yeah. They were definitely trying to be like, you know, have the same kind of like tone and feeling as far as watching the movie and the cinematography as like a green book, you know, like just kind of like the way it's shot, the way certain angles, certain close-ups of people, but it didn't work in green book. It works uh, uh, quite a few times. Well, that's a shame. Uh, I've got some failed Oscar bait myself to talk about. Yes. Uh, (laughs) The dig Uh, biopic of the finding of the uh, 1938 Sutton Hoo Anglo-Saxon ship that has been in the British Museum since the uh, 40s. Not a lot of emotional investment here. Uh, if you've never heard of this story, uh, there's not much to it. That's the thing. The problem with this movie is there's not enough meat for a movie so they make up a lot of pointless shit there's a lot of pointless subplots in this movie a lot of you know love triangles and um, emotional ties that don't make sense really it's just they found a boat in a field and dug it up that that's that's the whole story <laughs> jesus um, it takes place in 1938 right before uh britain declared war on germany and that's kind of looming in the background the whole time. Uh, one of the characters joins the RAF and falls in love with one of the uh, archaeologist's wife. The archaeologist is gay, he, but he's married because this was the 30s. And if you were a gay man, you were put in prison. And uh, she knows he's gay. Again, this is a movie about of archaeological dig, but this is half the movie. <laughs> and I just don't care. Like, I, I just don't. But Ray Fiennes and Carrie Mulligan are pretty good. They're both kind of phoning it in, but even phoning it in, they're both really good, <laughs> which I think speaks to their talents. Yeah, uh, agreed. This sounds like it would be a good movie if, like, Kelly Reichardt directed it. Yeah, I think if you could trim the trim a lot of the fat. You have a solid director. Kelly Reichardt would be good. Uh, and you just do the story. You tell this, the story that matters. And our whole, so the whole deal is uh, Ray Fines plays an independent excavator named uh, um, shit, what the hell was his name? Uh, I don't remember his name. Yeah, this didn't stick. <laughs> Watched it a few days ago, yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's an independent excavator who's hired by Carrie Mulligan to dig up these mounds in her on her massive property. Her husband's dead. She has a boy. 
Um, it's heavily implied that she's dying, but it might just be heartburn. Heartburn comes up a lot in this movie. And uh, Ray Fiennes is not an archaeologist. He's just a digger. And he starts digging up these mounds and he finds a, a ship that predates any known British uh, colonists like by two or three centuries. So it's a big deal. And uh, the museum finds out about it and they take it away from Ray Fiennes because he's just a digger. He's not a doctor. He doesn't have an archaeological degree. So he's not worth walking around. And the British Museum is played as such asshole snobs they're like the, the guy in charge is like you men dig over there and i shall sit over here and supervise and he's just like such he talks down to everybody who's who doesn't have a doctorate and it's just it's so over the top <laughs> that's perfect you get like it's so dull you zone out because once they dig up the boat there's like a question of ownership, like because it was on her property, does Carrie Mulligan like own the boat or does the British Museum, does the British government declare it like, you know, uh, asset of the state? This is, this is the conflict. <laughs> Will the there conflict, be a boat? The conflict with, uh, his name is Basil Brown. There we go, Basil Brown. That's what, I knew it was a, it was a double, it was a, a alliterative something. I was thinking no, it started with an S though. Samsonite. I was way off. <laughs> but- Slippy, slappy, Swinson, Swanson. <laughs> so um, you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> she must be unlisted. Uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, and the, the big vote is like, is, they, is the city going to vote on she gets the boat or the, the museum gets the boat? And the vote doesn't even happen on screen. They just say later, like, the museum won. They're going to take the boat. Like she was just gonna keep a like thirty foot, seven hundred year old Viking ship in her backyard. <laughs> Again, does this sound at all engaging? Because it's not. No, no, I'm I'm out. <laughs> I gave it a seven based on the strength of the performances. Oh yeah, I, I do 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 enjoy me some, you know, Ralph or. Um... Ray for uh, Carrie, they're both great. So yeah, that's in, that's intriguing. But yeah, I, from from hearing what you're saying and just kind of the general reviews of this film, yeah, I, I I'll probably skip it for a while. Yeah, Lily James is good as Margaret, the archaeolog, the gay archaeologist wife who falls in love with Carrie Mulligan's cousin, and um, but she's her character is only there to be horny. Like that's her whole. That's all she does. She's literally brought to the archaeological dig because she has small hands. And she's just there because she's light and she can step on this thing without breaking it. And then she's just trying to hook up with the cousin the whole time. Like, this is not a good, this is not good representation for 2021. Like, give us some substance really does, you know, a little goes a long way when it comes to character <laughs> development. And a little is better than nothing at all. So, yeah, I think that this was not particularly well written. It's very dull. It doesn't really have a point. There's no conflict. And I didn't really learn anything. So, yeah, the more I think about it, I might drop this to a six. 
It sounds like it. Sounds like it. Sounds like we got two sixes, my friend. Yeah, not a strong week, gotta say. But you know, no, we're following no. the calendar. They're not all going to be winners. No, no, this is this is this show, and that that's also why I'd like to have other discussions about what's happening in movies, and just you know, for instance, you know, talking about the Noah Bomb back and getting all the way to Christopher Nolan. We're always going to talk like that because that's you and I. We don't see each other a lot. So this is also us hanging out and just kind of chatting about what's true. going on. Very true. And, and that, that's definitely going to happen. You know, um, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> yeah. We just, you know, read off a script. No one would listen to this. <laughs> a lot of this is just us shooting the shit. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> bullet points. That's kind of the whole show. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't do it if I had to read something the whole time. <laughs> oh. um, you had mentioned uh, before we started recording that this is not your typical january release calendar that a lot yeah. of times there's a lot of shitty horror movies and blockbusters that didn't make it into december but because of covid we've got a pretty unique situation here yeah pretty unique it's gonna be unique up until april i mean this is this is what's going on we got we got big stuff coming the next couple of weeks you know and then even bigger stuff coming with nomadland and just keeps coming movies that are going to be Oscar nominated and performances that are going to be Oscar nominated. And like you said, yeah, it's normally like, yeah, the random ass horror movies and stuff that just gets lost and it's famous dumpuary, you know, it's the, the famous, famous month right before the Oscars that doesn't really in that regard doesn't matter. Um, but you and I have always kind of felt like we still see stuff during that month. Cause you never know. And like, we love seeing horror movies. So even if it's bad, we're probably going <laughs> to, we probably saw it at some point in the theaters, you know, um, that's just, that's just how we feel. We, we see shit all the time. Um, it's going to be different from here on out though. So, you know, depending, I don't know what's going to happen next year, but right now we're, we're seeing high quality stuff that even if it doesn't land, you're still, it's still, you know, Denzel Washington and Carrie Mulligan and Justin Timberlake and these actors that are like, you know, they're serious and they're going for it. And, you know, these movies are competing and it's a competitive season now. Instead of being dumpy worry, it's competitive. And I like that. I hope we keep that going forward because it is nice to, for every month of the year to have something to offer. <laughs> Except for Agreed. September, nothing really happens then. But I was looking up uh, something I was curious about. So uh, the Golden Globe nominations are happening on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you and i were talking about that before we uh started recording uh we had mentioned mentioned that oh my god you know it's it's february you know today <laughs> and you know we, we haven't seen nominations yet so like, yeah, it makes sense that they'd be coming out this week <laughs> i just assumed because they hadn't happened yet they weren't happening but no they're happening in two days so we're gonna have quite a lot to talk about next week <laughs> oh yeah it's gonna be gonna be a jam-packed show with uh that and then i think there's a netflix release <laughs> yeah i think there is uh, so let's talk about the little things. So this was the big movie. Um, well, biggest movie. Yeah. Uh, sported the most firepower uh, cast wise. We have Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto, three Oscar winners. Big deal. Uh, directed by a, written and directed by a fairly seasoned filmmaker. Uh, kind of fizzled. Uh, not a lot of people enjoyed this. This this has a pretty low tomato score. Um, was really met with negative feedback, and that's strange considering John Lee Hancock has been working on this for thirty years. 
Uh, this 30, was initially 30, 30, 30. Like yeah. that's, that's like, you know, that's longer than Mank has been in the works. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. I mean, for something that should have been incredibly finely tuned and well-polished, this was pretty generic and, uh, disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still kind of uh, uh, a little tad frustrated to be honest. The Little Things uh, was conceived in the 90s uh, for Clint Eastwood to star and Steven Spielberg to direct. But Spielberg found it to be way too dark. And this was in 1993, by the way, the year that Spielberg did Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And he thought The Little Things was too dark. That's, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, maybe, okay, maybe this product is not too dark for anyone. I don't see how it could be too dark for anyone. Uh, but, but, but Spielberg might think if I make it, it's going to be taxing on me because I'll make this movie really special. Maybe he saw a script that actually, if I have it in my hands, maybe, the, maybe I could really do something here and I don't want to go down that path. <laughs> maybe, maybe it could have been after, maybe it could have, I've heard a lot of people compare this film to like a wannabe seven. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've read a lot of a lot of stuff on Letterboxd. People are kind of making fun of it, saying this is like a fucking, you know, choppy seven. And I, I see that comparison. Yeah. But maybe maybe in the hands of Spielberg, it could be a seven. <laughs> maybe Spielberg just was in. I mean, after you do a twofer like that, you know, an incredible cultural phenomenon like Jurassic Park and maybe the darkest movie to ever win Best Picture, Schindler's List. Um you want to take a break. I mean, those are some heavy hitters to, to knock out in one year. So maybe Spielberg just didn't want to add a serial killer drama to his already exhausted soul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the 20 years of making films prior, you know? <laughs> so Hancock, I guess, sat on it for 30 years and said, fuck it. I'm doing it myself. And here we are. Um, John Lee Hancock has also directed the films The Rookie, The Alamo, The Blind Side, The Founder, and The Highwaymen. Guy likes his thes. He also wrote Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, The Alamo, The Blind Side, and Snow White and the Huntsman. So I don't even know where to begin with this guy. This guy's all over the place. He doesn't really have a style. He just kind of does his thing. His style is, uh, I, I see his style as uh, what it's become is like, he's shooting, shooting for Oscar bait. He's shooting for it. Like whatever the story is, he, the way he sees things is, is not something I really care for, to be honest with you. Um, I think the blind side is not, not, not good. Uh, Saving Mr. Banks also he directed. Uh, oh, I missed that one. Not, not for me. Um, the rookie, oh, I liked it as a kid, but now I watch it. Not for me, you know. Uh, the only one that I like, this is including the little things because I don't really like the little things. <laughs> would be the founder. I think the founder, because Michael Keaton is just crushing it, I think that movie is is worth is worthwhile and worth watching. But again, I think his his eye, even in that movie, is very Oscar Beatty and very very basic. Yeah, I think so. The founder works 
I don't I think almost entirely because of the cast. Michael Keaton, yeah, John Carroll Lynch, Nick Offerman, like they're great. But yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my god, John Carroll Lynch and Nick Offerman as fucking yeah, that brilliant decision making right there. Yeah. There's a fox in the hen house and we let him in. Like it's a great movie. I, oh, yeah, I love how I love how Nick Offerman's like, we gotta do this, man. You know, we gotta gotta make this deal and john carroll lynch is like goes into zodiac mode no mcdonald's is ours bitch you know <laughs> i love i love there there's definitely aspects of that movie that i still very much care for and i, I remember seeing it in theaters yeah um i still remember that like seeing that i saw it by myself and i was just like god keaton's the man you know and even even uh linda cardellini is pretty good uh and yeah i think the cast like you said kind of speaks for itself but yeah his his, his eye is too like it's too generic i get kind of bored like I, I, I very much prefer, you know, directors who are trying to always make, make your eyes move and, and just kind of keeping you on your toes and whether it be like a tracking shot or, you know, anything, a close up. I, I just prefer it to be changing and moving and have a pace to it. Sometimes these like these angles that uh, John Lee Hancock's going for, I just don't really care for, you know? Well, I like a filmmaker where I can watch their film and without seeing the name on the, the poster, know, oh, this is a blank film. Like I can tell. And a lot of, you know, all my favorite filmmakers have that style. And guys like John Lee Hancock just don't. They're, you know, I think they want to have that, but they just, yeah. they don't know how to get up, how to go about it. Because all of these films, I, I had no clue they were directed by the same person because they all have, Maybe his style is just mediocrity. Yeah, well, yeah, I think there's filmmakers that are like, that are just going to make movies, if that makes sense. I know that sounds stupid, but they're just going to kind of do their job. Oh, I'm, the direct, of- I'm the director, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, you and I very much fall in love with the auteurs and the guys who are trying to shape their own distinct style. Those are the guys we've, that's, those are the guys we love. John Carpenter, you know, like practicality and using what he's got and, being original and sticking to his guns like we care about that stuff we care we we care very much about like what the the, what the filmmaker thinks and what they want to do and what originality they're going to bring we care about that when i think that with the little things i think hancock was trying to capture something of his own but like you Mm -hmm. said he ended up just kind of ripping off better filmmakers a hundred percent there were times where it was like oh and then you're like "Mm, no you know he I don't know how to articulate it, but he, he, he makes decisions that, that might start off original or unique and then just kind of get lazy halfway through because he just, yeah, he, I think it's a lack of style. Yeah. I think, you know, he's, he's got his influences, but he's letting them drive his hand. I think he's not taking from his, you know, from his influences and adapting that style to his own to make something new. He's just saying, let's let David Fincher drive this scene. I love seven. So let's just do seven. (laughs) It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a great, that's a great topic that I think you and you and I, there's, there's a line and there's, you know, certain things you can do where you're paying homage to a filmmaker or to a film or whatever. But in the little things when you don't have any stretch of like your own, like it feels like it's your own thing and that not one of your characters feels like it was from your head. You know, I, I get frustrated. 
and, and I was looking forward to this, you know, I wanted to, I really wanted to give him this chance because I watched the highwayman. I thought it was, uh, you know, but I like the founder and I was like, oh, I, I like this cast. I like Denzel. I'm, you know, I have my feelings about Rami Malek and Jared Leto, but I like some of the stuff they've both done. And I, yeah, just, I was just super underwhelmed, super, super underwhelmed. Well, you mentioned that like none of the characters feel like original idea. They all feel like, you know, <laughs> various traits yeah. put into a mold. I mean, Rami Malek's character might as well just be called, you know, young upstart, dangerous cop. Oh my God. Everything like, he says is exactly what I've heard in every goddamn cop procedural since 2001. It's insane. And uh, yeah. And I love, you know, I love Denzel's Denzel's craft because his work is, he's awesome. And he's fucking 66 years old now. I think that guy, you know, has like a certified spot in the hall of fame. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's amazing. But goddamn, this character <laughs> is like, what, it, what, what are we doing? He's so poorly written. And the way he comes across is like, dude, what, what are we doing? The scene with Marsha. Oh my God. Like, I know you, you know me, we know each other, you know, just get the fuck out of here. Like, That's, what is this? That reeked of reshoots. That was such a, we got to add something in there. Oh, I know. Oh. God, I hated that. I hated that. And I hated when Rami Malek's like, how do you listen to sappy sixties love songs all the time? He's like, it takes me back to the backseat of my car with Marsha. What the fuck are we doing? Don't be disrespectful to Denzel like that. Give him a bullshit line to say. Terrible, dude. There are moments in this movie where I was like, I looked at Brianna, I looked at my girlfriend. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, what's going on right now? Like, fucking stupid. <laughs> this is interesting. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. This is our first bad movie on, on the sneak preview. <laughs> Yay. Uh, uh, yeah, and this was this is hard because like I don't I I'm not gonna say it's you know I haven't seen the dig but like I'm not gonna say it's worse than those movies but clearly the expectations were were set somewhere yes. and the the ad the constant ads for it and it being built as this like you said the kind of this big movie for HBO Max and it just it was just underwhelming and that sucks that's frustrating I don't like that feeling. No, as a writer myself, I hate when anything any character I write comes across as. A copy or you know a one note and this yeah. moment, i can spot that like with no you know with ease now and it's all over this film every character i've seen before and even though like the cast is pretty decent um they bring literally nothing new to the table and then the ending is just incredibly disrespectful to anybody who oh. spent their time watching this the one thing I wanted to know, to know, the one thing keeping me in the chair was who did it? <laughs> That's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> and you're not even going to have the goddamn common courtesy to give me that? Fuck you. <laughs> oh, man. That, and uh, Yeah. You want to go through the cast properly here? Uh, start, starting with Denzel? Sure. Let's do this. So we have two-time Oscar winner Denzel Washington as disgraced detective Joe Deacon. Washington won his Oscars for 1989's Glory and 2001's Training Day, both incredible, well-deserved performances. He was also nominated for Cry Freedom, Malcolm X, The Hurricane, Flight, Fences, and Roman J. Israel Esquire. And he's, you know, 
one of the top 10 most respected actors and now directors in Hollywood. He's, he's Denzel Washington. I mean, that's who he is. It's <laughs> yeah. He's the man. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he's a guy who kills it. Even in, you know, when he does the occasional paycheck gig, this one very much feels like a paycheck gig. He, even then, I'll tell you why I was still watching. I was like, man, this movie doesn't know what it's doing and doesn't know where it wants to go. But there is something about watching Denzel on a stakeout that I'm just on board with. I like, I'm just a sucker for that particular actor. Not when he's in the car with Rami Malek, but when he's by himself and I'm, I, I just watch him. I don't know what it is. There's certain guys that are like that. Um, yeah. You know, I think like I think about like one of my favorite guys like that's you know working like in his prime right now would be like Ryan Gosling. Like I can just watch that guy smoke a cigarette and kind of get in the car and kind of do this and do that and go to the store. I could watch it all day. And Denzel had has had that for so long, and that's why I was just like, I guess I'll keep watching. Like <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Denzel, I can watch him look through this apartment while he's by himself for a little while. I don't know. Um, even though the script, yeah, just did not give him stuff to work with, gave him lines that made no sense and just kind of folded over this character and made just, just no clarity, no, like someone needed to be helping John Lee when he's, you know, writing out specifically for Denzel's character, like, dude, you're giving him nothing to really latch onto and work with here. Cause this, this Deacon character, what are we supposed to think about him? I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it felt like, you know, Hancock had pulled, bits from so many different cop characters in film there was a little bit of you know jake Giddis from chinatown there was a little bit of brad pitt's character yep. from seven there was yep. some john mcclain in there like he was just every cop movie hancock has seen he just like wrote as much into joe deacon as he could and he ends up just coming across as an insincere caricature of a disgraced detective even with denzel trying his hardest to bring something to this guy I mean, in the end, you know, like, is this supposed to be a redemption arc, a punishment arc? Like, what are we supposed to expect from Deacon in the end here? And you know what we get is fuck all. <laughs> truly, truly. Yeah. God, ugh, the last like 20 minutes, I was, you know, I was kind of like, I was ready for it to be over. It's, it is literally seven. They drive out to the middle of the desert and do an unspeakable act and then drive away. Like it's the same deal. There's just no box this time. It's, oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize how upset I was about this movie until we started talking about it. This is, this is what's good about just talking about stuff and just kind of realizing, Oh man, there's holes in this. Cause when, cause when you watch something alone sometimes, or, or if you, or if you don't have the conversation afterwards about it, sometimes it just kind of washes over you and you're like, ah, oh, whatever, you know? I do that all the time. I do that all the time. And I have to kind of check myself like, wait a minute, what am I watching? You know, what am I really watching? And I think that comes, comes down to like also music too. You know, you're like, what am I really listening to here? You know, is this really, ugh, is this really what I want to put in my head? Is this really what I want to, you know, kind of vibe out to? And sometimes with movies, you got to really like take a step back and be like, Oh my God, I've seen this before. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, there's just, there's just stuff all over the place here that just doesn't make sense and it definitely has to do with uh, the writing and with these characters and that's also denzel's character it's sad to see 
Yep. It's a shame when bad scripts happen to good actors. For sure. Especially when we know exactly what they can do with a good script. Yeah. Denzel is one of the most charismatic performers in film history. The guy has a screen presence that very few can rival. So to see him just have such a weak bit of work to work with, it sucks. And let's talk about my biggest problem with this movie, Oscar winner Rami Malek, who plays upstart detective Jim Baxter. Malek won his Oscar for 2018's Bohemian Rhapsody, which I still contest. And um, he sucks in this movie, like straight up. He's phoning it in so hard. He's mumbling everything. He's not looking anybody in the eye. He doesn't give a shit. You can tell. It's, It's fucking embarrassing. Oh man, I uh, oh boy, this guy, this guy's not doing too good for me. Um, as a, as a fan, you know, he's he's he keeps doing things that bother the shit out of me, and and I am a big big fan of Mr. Robot on USA. Uh, he plays Elliot Elliot Alderson, but good God, like go back to acting school or something, because like. What, what's happening? No, seriously, man, because this guy's like a, you know, Oscar winner and he didn't even fucking sing in Bohemian Rhapsody, so that's bullshit too. But this guy, like, with all of this, like, this wave, this momentum of, like, Rami Malek, like, yeah, you know, it's like this, this fucking bullshit wave that's, like, undeserved. There's so many people who are far more talented than him that just don't get the fucking light of day. Yeah. And so I, 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 it's hard for me to even understand, like, why the hell did he get this role? Like, I don't know, because cl- clearly it's not, there's not one moment during this movie where I'm like, oh, okay, Rami, you know, not one moment where he's truly acting, truly going for it. And you're with Denzel and Jared Leto, do something, dude, because you look like an idiot. You look bad because these two guys are trying. With this bad script, they're both trying their asses off. Jared Leto is letting shit fly because he doesn't know what else to do. And you're doing nothing. You sit and fucking stare at your pool in your backyard like as if this is like a godfather moment at the end of the movie. Get out of here, dude. Awful performance. The worst I've seen all year. Shit. Yeah, man. It's it's so bad. I I can't believe like this is the take they used. Like I can't. It feels like I'm watching the dress rehearsal at times. It's insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stupid. And the way, like, the, it feels like his character feels lifted straight out of a CSI episode. Like, that's how. Not the, even a movie. It's fucking yeah. TV. Yeah. Exactly. Like, not even good TV. <laughs> Daytime television. And it, it's just, there's no meat to this character at all. He's every cop I've ever seen on a TV show who's, you know, you're not by the book. Well, I'm getting cases solved, you know, put on the sunglasses, cue the fucking who music. It's I'm, I'm tired of this guy. I'm tired of this generic cop shit. When you have a cast like this, when you have a triple threat Oscar winner, use it, do something with it. I mean, it's, it really does suck, especially knowing that Rami Malek can do it. I've seen him act very well. I, I do enjoy his performance as Freddie Mercury. I just don't think it was Oscar worthy. 
but he is really good. That's fair. Yeah. But this was, this was unforgivable, man. This was ridiculously low tier. Like nobody with an Oscar should ever phone it in like this. I want to take his Oscar away from him. <laughs> like that's what I, well, I, I, I wanted to do that right when he fucking got it. Yeah. Like this is, you know, Eddie Redmayne and Jupiter ascending levels of bad where I want to take the Oscar away. Like you do not deserve this anymore. Clearly there was a glitch in the system. <laughs> there was, there was, oh. there was. Yeah. Oh uh, man. Very frustrating to watch a, watch a guy who's on the screen the whole time. Just kind of like not even, yeah, not even not giving anybody anything. Really? Yeah. It's great. It's ridiculous. And even and his arc doesn't make sense either. Like what are, what is we supposed to get out of this character? His entire character from the moment he rolls his window down and it looks at Denzel's character Deacon and is like, "Can I buy you breakfast?" <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm out. Like this guy is clearly not not here. Like he's not even. I don't know where he is right now. He's not here though. God, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our third guy here, Oscar winner Jared Leto, who plays shady as fuck Albert Sparma. Leto won his Oscar for 2013's Dallas Buyers Club, a film I've regrettably still not seen. Um, do not have a lot of love for Jared Leto. I've heard he's kind of a dick. And I also don't really care for his performances beyond Requiem for a Dream. But I thought he was really good in this. I was really surprised at him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I also don't like 30 seconds to Mars either. It's kind of bullshit. So, you know, (laughs) I'm, yeah, I'm not, not, not a huge fan of Jared Leto. Uh, This, this performance has the most there. Denzel is the easiest for me to watch just because like, you know, he has that presence, but Jared Leto, there are, there are a couple moments here. Just his, just his figure and the hair and the, the, the get up, the triple A, you know, uh, uniform, all of that is, is very creepy. Very, very creepy. And he, he could kind of belong in any, you know, movie. He could have been in Zodiac. He could have been in this, you know, just dressed this way, you know. And it like totally, totally works in moments. And when he's, you know, walking to the strip club and just kind of like, they're just kind of watching him. Sort of interesting because he's such a weird looking guy, such a creepy looking figure. And then, like I said, when they finally like get him in and he starts having dialogue, he's just letting shit fly, literally, because I bet you he had no idea what else to do. And so he's, you know, making jokes up and, you know, saying shit to Denzel and Rami Malek. And for a moment there, you know, it's entertaining. But as the movie went along, I, I, it's, I don't know if it's Jared Leto's fault, just like it was, well, I didn't feel like it was Denzel's fault, but I f- feel like the character just got less and less interesting as I got to see him and know him more because the writing, the writing is like, what, like, what are we doing with this specific character? And then, and then, and then the ending just like, just pissed me off. So, and that moment with Jared Leto, where he's just like, Oh, actually it was over here. Actually. Oh, I think whoopsie date. He says, Oh, poop. At one point, like I messed up and I'm just like, Oh man, I don't know. Like, I don't think that's, necessarily Jared Leto's fault for that progression, but I didn't, I didn't love the progression of his character. I much preferred the early moments when he's him and Denzel are on the highway and they're kind of chasing each other. That was a great scene. 
that was that, a great there scene. yeah there that's there's stuff there or even even when he initially catches Rami Malek when he's on the phone he's like boo you know like there's a couple moments there where okay I okay that kind of got me a little bit that was kind of cool like like that's all on Jared Leto's you know his presence but I, I you know always got to go back to the writing I just don't think there's a lot there for him to kind of like grapple onto and like wrestle with and play with I think he's doing a lot of like just like oh shit I guess I'll just do this I think Jared Leto is trying to act and he's like I don't know what else to do in certain moments so I'm just gonna kind of throw something out there and it works occasionally but overall I again I felt like I had seen it before and it, it it's mostly due to the writing and that sucks yeah I think I think you got a point there I do think Jared Leto wanted to make a memorable character yeah yeah for sure i think you know playing bad guys there's a certain amount of freedom that you get to be a just a bastard i think he wanted that but the film never really gives him a chance to go either way you don't yeah yeah he can't commit to being a liar or a killer and we need that commitment for this character to fully work and since we never get that commitment, we're left with a half-baked character here. And a half-baked character who also does feel like, you know, a little ripped off. You know, there's a little a little Arthur Lee Allen in here, a little John Doe. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I don't know, man. I just, I think with a, with a better script, I think he could have been one of the most memorable villains of the year. Yeah, I agree. I I I think that I think there's something here. I yeah. really do, and that's why we're so frustrated because we see something, yeah, kind of under the surface. That's like, oh, there probably is something here yeah. if you just tighten the screws, just fucking tighten it. I have watched hundreds of shit films, and most of the time, I'm like, yeah, that was shit, but I knew that going in. It's these where you know that the potential is there, and it's still shit that's that's the upsetting part that's the those are the ones that stay with you because you're like what could have been you know and there is a lot of untapped potential in this film and i think it just comes down to john lee hancock's either inexperience or lack of awareness yeah and like we talked about earlier with his direction it's just like a lack of commitment to style and a a commitment to his own distinct style where there's a couple shots that are cool, but for the most part, it feels generic. And so you, you want you want the filmmaker to stay on top of those decisions and to consistently, you know, kind of top, top themselves. You know, like that's why we are addicted to guys like Tarantino because it gets it gets better, it gets more stylish as it goes on, and he keeps surprising you, keeps moving the camera, keeps taking weird angles, and that that's exciting because you're watching a two-hour movie. You you want it to move in a cool way. And the little things moves like things we've seen, like you said, 500 times. I remember reading um, something. I think it was a Stephen King uh, quote or a tweet or something. Somebody had asked him, how do I write like Stephen King? And he said, you can't. Only I can write like you. Yeah, you dumbass. God, I hate <laughs> shit like that. I hate, 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 hate. Like, how could I play like this person, like a, a guitar? You can't get as good as you can you dumbass like how could i model my basketball game after this you can't <laughs> one of, yeah one of the best parts of being creative maybe the best part of 
having a creative mindset is being able to develop who you are as an artist, your own style. I know Julie can attest to that very much. And for sure. I think, I think, I think Josh art can, I think Juwan and Andrew and you and you and I can, I think we totally understand that you, you got to find your shit. You've got to figure it out and make your own opinion. Yeah. Like I know that, you know, I, when I write my own work, I'm not trying to mimic, you know, Stephen King or, uh, you know, making your own style. Kind of the, kind of the only guy I read really. <laughs> thinking trying to think of some of my favorites like no it's pretty much just him he's the most consistent one yeah <laughs> but yeah i just i know that you know it's going to be insincere if you try to replicate anybody's voice or vision you have to come up with your own or else people are going to see through it immediately and we did yeah exactly <sighs> exactly uh <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people have like we said yeah. at the beginning i think it has like a 48 percent or some shit and you know it has a 2.7 on Letterboxd. Yikes. Out of 2.7 out of 5. Not even barely over halfway there. Not good. The Little Things has an IMDb score of 6.3. Current Rotten Tomato score of 47%. So I guess it oh. dropped. And yeah, dropped 1%. It's been met with pretty mixed reviews. It's going to be available on HBO Max for about a month. That's how they're doing it. Uh, watch it if you want. Uh, I don't recommend it. I thought this was... Neither do I. The, uh, we have th- we have three non recommendations here. Sorry about that, but 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 again, we are also believers in making your own, making your own opinion, figuring it out for yourself. So if you want to dive into it, dive into it. Yeah, absolutely. We've covered pretty much as much as we wanted to talk about with this film, but let's let's go into the ending a bit here. That's kind of one we uh, danced uh, around. Yes, yes. Haven't really talked about. So, spoiler alert. Obviously, uh, Rami Malek and Jared Leto inexplicably drive into the desert uh not a great cop move rami and uh no kidding no cop would ever do that without backup uh they go into the desert jared leto claims that the woman who went missing uh is buried out here hands rami malik a shovel he starts digging jared leto keeps giving him different spots and taunting him and that girl by the way we never find out what happened to her so that's there's more there uh jared leto keeps taunting him saying you know you'll never know you don't even know if i'm the guy i've never killed anyone in my life so you're just wasting your time rami snaps and beats him to death with a shovel (laughs) one quick swoop and all the mystery is gone and if he really was the guy holy shit what a way to end that kill career yeah, but by I, just getting murdered, yeah. And then Denzel shows up and is like, I got this. Goes back to his house, packs up everything, and tells Rami to bury him. And uh, it's really a gut punch of an ending, but not in the good way. It's very much a like, that's it kind of ending. Uh, we're just kind of left with way more questions. Nothing gets answered. And we don't know in the end what happened. And Denzel tricks Rami Malek into thinking they got the guy, sends him the red barrette. So he's, his conscience is clear, but that was fake. And uh, yeah, it's implied that, you know, 
the journey's never over and like there's always somebody else to find and yeah, we've we know that we've We've seen, seen that over and over. Movies. We know that the hunt is never ending. We know what a police officer does. That's not yeah. news. Yeah, and you you have that you have that you know flashback to when Denzel accidentally shot that girl. Yeah. So it's like, oh, he, he had people cover up shit for him, so he's got to help this guy cover up shit, and in turn, there's just gonna be more covering up because cops just don't do their jobs correctly. Like, I I don't know, like, what narrative is this? Like, what are we doing? What kind of a message is that? Like. St- Embrace the corruption because these cops exactly. are fuck-ups? That's exactly what I, I'm telling you. That's exactly what I got out of this bullshit. Yeah. yeah. We're supposed to sympathize with these guys, but meanwhile, Denzel shot and killed an innocent girl in cold blood and his department covered it up. That's and he's lost not, his mind. And he's lost his mind because yeah, of it. That is not the actions of a hero. And then no. Malik, convinced that this guy with no evidence was the killer, st- stoved his head in with a shovel. And then buried him in the desert. Again, bad, (laughs) bad shit. And it's, you know, yeah, Jared Leto was a piece of shit, regardless of whether or not he did it or not. That's a, you know, he's a dick. But I don't think he was the guy. After all that, that's that's the ultimate question here. Do you think Jared Leto did it? And I think no. I don't think he did. I think he was a dick who loved getting off on fucking with the cops. Yeah, no, I think he was like a kind of sick person who frequented the uh, strip club. He worked at various places like mechanic shops and towing places and just kind of like strange jobs and said he's like a crime buff. And then, yeah, he's like leading these guys astray and just has this really like nice car. He's just a bizarre person. And I would totally believe that he would, yeah, just get off by dicking around with the cops i totally totally buy that yeah. and the witness earlier you know who saw him in cuffs and that immediately is a a big old you know fly in the ointment when it comes to identifying a witness or identifying a suspect that was interesting the way they kind of kept us off the scent there but i just i wanted i need to know you know it's it's frustrating to not get closure especially after sitting through that through that and uh yeah 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 i had it as a seven but i'm i'm dropping that to a six yeah no i I was even flirting with with a five Uh, i'll give it a six i think i think there's enough there to push it to a six but yeah it's it's fucking you know it's not at this point it's not yeah it's not something i'm like writing home about (laughs) no yeah i just i can't i can't recommend it to people who are trying to you know, maximize their time and watch like good things, <laughs> you know, cause I know it's hard. There's a lot of stuff out there to watch. And if someone wants a recommendation, this is just not one I would, I would, I would give out. No, this is, yeah, it's a triple six. It's a, <laughs> it's a, not a great week for, for film here. We got, you know, three relatively shitty movies. So, 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 so they wanted to be Oscar movies, but actually it really was dumpy <laughs> Can't get rid of Dumpuary. It's just, yeah. you know, shinier rapper now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I think, I think we've, you know, we talked about Pieces of Woman at the beginning of the year. Uh, we talked about um, One Night in Miami, you know, and I think there's some stuff coming up here soon that's going to be really good. We just, yeah, we just got, we got three strikes here and it happens. Sorry if you liked any of them. 
<laughs> but but we clearly just you know they're just kind of average to us and i i i figured we we would we would uh, be on the same page with with the little things just because you are you literally write one of your things that you do with your life is you like to write and you have got good at it and it's something that you sniff out pretty fast and i sniff out um lack of style very quickly yeah and you and you and i have started to kind of adopt those things from one another and so we we both are going to feel similarly because we're on this journey together uh it's going to happen but um, I, I'm glad we can kind of talk it out, man. Cause I, I definitely think talking about the little things, it, you start to understand why it just didn't move, didn't move smoothly at all. It really didn't. It's, it comes down to just a lack of talent in, you know, writing and directing, just not having a, a voice of your own, not having a, a story to tell. And yeah, this feels like fan fiction. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I even I, <laughs> I was talking to Brianna while we were watching it, and I, I'll sound like a total dick here, but I said while watching this movie and Palmer, I, I said I was like, if I feel like I could do it, then probably isn't that good, because I'm you know I mean, <laughs> damn, I'm just I'm just me. <laughs> Think a little little better of yourself. <laughs> No, I'm, no, I'm saying like if if I could film, make a shot of you know Jared Leto in in Rami Malek with no taste or style, like you know I can probably do that. So what's what's the point of watching this? You know, it's just not original at all. So I feel like because you've embraced all of these filmmakers and you know like their little ticks and stuff, I feel like you would be able to generate your own vision. I think you, yeah, I but think at the same could. time, but at the same time, it would be so hard for me to not copy people. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, I I can imagine. Oh my gosh, you know, I think that's the most daunting thing if you were to go into you know, filmmaking is is trying to preserve your own your own style, your own craft, and not copying other people. I'm sure it's very very difficult and so hard to not do because you're like, oh, I just want to do this cool thing that you know that Jean-Luc Godard did or Scorsese did or, or Stanley Kubrick. Like I'm sure that's so hard to not do. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of, we've seen it in the past uh, couple of years. I mean, look at Robert Eggers. I think he's a, he's a great filmmaker, but he borrows, you know, so does Ari Aster. Like those two guys, especially they borrow and there's nothing wrong with that because they're adding that to their own like they're adding little bits of pieces to their own style. For sure, for sure. I can see, you know, give it a film, a few more films, and I, I will be able to tell an Ari Aster film without looking at. Oh the yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll probably have the A twenty four thing. So yeah, that, yeah, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think like, uh, you know, a movie we just talked about an Oscar Sunday yesterday. I had a blast on that episode. You know, Moonlight is is totally like he, he Barry Jenkins wears his inspiration on his sleeve. Yeah. And if you're, if you're familiar with like French new wave, like you're going to see it in moonlight, you're going to see a European style filmmaking in moonlight. If you're familiar with it, if not, it's going to look super fresh and super vibrant. And like, how the fuck, how are you going from a, you know, swinging shot to handheld within seconds? 
well, cause the people he loves do that. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, man. I, I think there is something about like these guys that we really respect, like Eggers and Aster, like there's a line and most of the time they both know when to kind of, I know, I know Midsommar is, is very much copying stuff from the seventies. I mean, it's just like a love letter to, <laughs> to seventies horror, but like hereditary is like deliberately making decisions that remind you of the shining. And then it's like, Whoa, I've never seen that before. And I, okay. I, I adore when that happens. I adore when you see something just like off the wall, totally new, whether it be with an actor or with a shot, with a, you know, with, with dialogue. And then they also are like, yeah, but I know why I'm here. With that, you know, looking back, my biggest issue with Midsommar, the reason I didn't like it was because I could tell it, it directly ripped off the Wicker Man. Yes. It was, you know, betraying that sense of style and originality I saw in Hereditary. And yeah, it really comes down to that. You know, I don't, I don't like when, when the shit that I like gets ripped off and there we are <laughs> do you think do you think also also you know there's i'm sure there's, there's going to be movies we see you know well not, not sure i'm positive there's going to be movies that we see like oh shit that's like elmer gantry was like oh my god like paul thomas anderson clearly watched this you yeah. know yeah and like you you start recognizing those things as you watch more stuff there's probably a movie out there probably like a japanese movie or something that will remind you of hereditary and you'll be like holy shit <laughs> oh you just like you just never know you know this 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 world is so much bigger than people want to admit and realize yeah and you, you and i are trying to trying to pick off the layers and figure it out and that's that's the most fun thing in the world well with elmer gantry and uh, there will be blood you can see the influences but you can also see Paul Thomas Anderson's own style. Oh, well, yeah, he, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. He took the character of Elmer Gantry and he made like a, you know, he, he turned Daniel Plainview into almost like the worst case scenario, evil Elmer Gantry. So he took the best qualities of that character, added them to this mixture, and then just let Daniel Day-Lewis mix it all together. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and also, you know, Paul Dano is playing this, you know, pastor character who we just have all kinds of questions about. And we have questions, but Elmer Gantry gives us answers, you know, cause he's, he, he's Elmer Gantry. He's the main character. And I love that PTA, like you said, kind of knows when to kind of halt and like, leave it there. And, yeah. and, and, and now, now let's, let's completely make this thing our own. And he's, he, he will, he will never stop paying homage to the stuff he loves. He'll never stop doing that. Of course not. And I wouldn't want him to. Because there no. is, you know, I like a certain amount of mystery in a film. I think, you know, leaving some unanswered questions can be good. It is all about how you present it. All about how you finalize it. The script is the end-all be-all in some cases. It, and, it, really, it really can be, man. When you're, when you're trying to make a movie about decisions and talking and whatnot, yeah, you gotta, you gotta know what you're doing. The Little Things wants to be character-driven, but it is trapped in a story-driven screenplay. I think that's, that, that's, a, that's, all, I can, that's all I can add. That's all, yeah, all we can really say about it. Yeah. <laughs> Should have been so much better. That's all for this week, folks. Next week, our impending releases are Malcolm and Marie on Netflix and Minamata in theaters. 
Uh, tune in next Monday to see what we talk about. Malcolm and Marie is, of course, the Netflix drama starring John David Washington and Zendaya. Looks really intense. And uh, Minamata is a Johnny Depp drama about uh, a Japanese uh, ecological disaster that is not getting a lot of play. We all know why. And uh, I'm hoping to give that a chance. I've, if I'm able to see it, I will definitely bring it up on the show. But oh, yeah. our Malcolm and Marie will be next week's favorite. Don't miss uh, our look into The Return of the Living Dead on Wednesday's Filmgasm and our look into Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights on Oscar Sunday. Uh, very excited. Thanks for listening and keep watching movies. Mm-hmm.